This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Greetings and welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Mike Ove, and here's what's coming up. As Zimbabweans, we are no longer safe. Anytime we can be attacked, these people, South Africans, they no longer want us. Either you are documented or undocumented. That was Zimbabwe national great man Mkwebo on growing fears of living in South Africa after a compatriot was brutally killed by vigilantes. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. In our top story of the day, the latest deadly attacks in Nigeria have left 24 people dead. The governor of Benue State told residents that they're an endangered species and must rise up to defend themselves because they can't wait for help any longer. Benue's government spokesman said a Fulani herdsman was suspected of carrying out the attacks Monday night and early Tuesday, killing at least eight people in Badwem and 16 in Tiodio. Scores of others were injured. President Muhammadu Buhari vowed no mercy for those responsible as pressure mounts on authorities to curb worsening security. Clashes over land and water between nomadic herders and local farmers are common in Benue, but in the past two years, communal tensions have become deadlier with gangs known locally as bandits raiding villages to kill, kidnap and rape. In addition to fighting gangs in northwest and central Nigeria, Buhari's security forces are also combating a 12-year-old jihadist insurgency in the northeast and separatist tensions in the southeast. In news related to South Africa, large parts of South Africa's eastern province of KwaZulu-Natal remain underwater after heavy rains that started over the weekend have spawned flooding, swamping some communities and isolating others. Emergency services say at least 60 people have drowned or been killed in mudslides and building collapses. VOA's Darren Taylor reports the death toll is expected to rise significantly as scores of people remain missing. The floodwaters are so deep in places that the government's called in boats from the National Sea Rescue Institute, the NSRI, to save people stranded in cities, towns and villages in KwaZulu-Natal. Our thoughts are with the families who still have people missing. This has been a massive coordinated response by all of the emergency services. Thousands of people were rescued. Craig Lambernon is NSRI spokesman in KwaZulu-Natal. A lot of jet skis, boats were used, floating devices, but we also commend the community that came together in assisting each other during this time. It's been a massive incident. There are still operations underway. There are roads that are collapsing. We are continuing to appeal to the public, don't try to cross over swollen rivers or flooded areas. Don't drive over bridges that are under flood. Stay on high ground, stay at home at this stage uh, a while. Uh, um, Lambanon's concerned about what emergency services will find in areas that they haven't been able to access yet. Very sadly, there has been loss of life. There are still cases, potentially even more than what we may imagine at this stage, of people missing. Services are prepared for that. We believe that there are additional air resources that are being pulled in by government to assist in this operation. Operations Chief for the Medivac Group, Glenn Preston, says rescuers are under immense pressure. Rescue teams have been busy since about midnight last night, evacuating people from their houses. Commonly flooded areas were evacuated earlier in the evening. However, there were certain areas that they weren't able to access. 
at this stage, we cleared out all of the people at the stuck in areas where they, they were at risk of being washed away or stuck in their houses in and rising flood waters. Currently, his teams are all out busy trying to get roads cleared and open to allow access again to the areas. Preston says a major concern is that many areas can't get supplies of food, medicine and other essential goods. We've had a major section of the N2 freeway washed away. The southbound carriageway is open, but nobody is able to travel northbound. More of our rural areas are completely cut off at the state through mudslides and roads that have caved in. Our coastal road is, has been washed away in about four sections, so it's completely impossible. And all the low-lying bridges are completely underwater. Preston says tens of thousands of people are homeless. The floods have hit just before the Easter holidays, when holidaymakers from across South Africa usually stream to coastal resorts in KwaZulu-Natal. Emergency organizations say there's little chance of key infrastructure being repaired soon, so the province will almost certainly lose many millions of rands in tourism turnover. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. In more South Africa-related news, Amnesty International says many migrants no longer feel safe in Johannesburg's Deep Sloot Township, where a community vigilante group brutally killed a Zimbabwean national during a hunt for illegal foreign workers and criminals last week. The human rights group interviewed several foreign nationals who say they fear what happened to Elvis Nyati, who was stoned and burned to death, will happen to them too. One organization, the Foundation for Human Rights, says it has been flooded with calls from immigrants who need assistance to leave South Africa. Tuso Kumalo reports from Johannesburg. Amnesty International says the deadly attack on Nyati and growing incidents of intimidation of foreign nationals by vigilante groups have left foreign nationals in constant fear. Shanila Mohammed, executive director of Amnesty International South Africa, told VOA that the killing of Nyati is not an isolated incident, but just one of the latest incidents in a rising tide of violence against migrants. The mobs that have been going door-to-door demanding documents of residents are committing a crime and authorities need to clamp down on this immediately. Police need to act against anyone perpetrating a crime, but also those who take the law into their own hands. Authorities have confirmed that before Nyati's death, about five locals were murdered and local residents blame foreign nationals. But Mohammed says all the murders could have been avoided if police did their job and the government had the will to act on problems faced by communities. Amongst the complaints established by Amnesty International is constant harassment of these immigrants by police and vigilante groups. Zimbabwean National Gretman Kwebu talked about their concerns. As Zimbabweans, we are no longer safe. Anytime we can be attacked, these people, South Africans, they no longer want us, either you are documented or undocumented. We can either prepare to go home because really, really, we are no longer safe in this country. Sarah Mota, programs manager at the Foundation for Human Rights, said in an interview with local media that the organization has received several calls from migrants living in Dipsloot who want help to return to their countries. We are calling on, uh, you know, the international community, some of the UN agencies like the International Organization for Migration and uh, the Red Cross and uh, the embassies where the migrants are coming from to come on board and support the call to get some of the migrants repatriated. 
efforts to get a comment from the Zimbabwean embassy on whether it has also received repatriation requests were referred to the ambassador, who did not immediately respond. A memorial service for the slain Nyati will be held tomorrow before his body is repatriated to Zimbabwe. Police say no one has been arrested for his death. South Africa has many undocumented migrants who have left their countries for work opportunities, leading to clashes with locals over scarce jobs as the official unemployment rate has jumped to 35%. Tusokumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. In Mali, Mali's army says it has arrested five people, including three Europeans, on suspicions of terrorism during operations against jihadists. An army statement did not identify the suspects who were arrested in Diabali, about 300 kilometers northwest of Bamako. The spread of jihadists from the north has spilled into neighboring Burkina Faso and Niger. In the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, the Allied Democratic Forces militants say they're responsible for recent deadly attacks. The ADF's claim was on an Islamic State militant's website. The ADF is allied with the Islamic State. Reporter Jafar Al-Gadanti in Goma in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo spoke with VOA's Kate Pound Dawson today about this development and a statement he obtained from the M23 or March 23 movement rebels. The website Amak of the Islamic State propaganda uh, posted this morning pictures of ADF militants burning houses uh, near the bridge in Ituri, and they claimed that they are the one who attacked and killed people, Christian in Eastern Congo in Ituri province. Now, also, the M23 militants have been very active lately, but uh, I understand uh, they have pulled out of some villages that they had previously occupied. What are they saying? The M23 said uh, the solution for the Eastern Congo problem cannot be uh, the war. But they talk, they want to talk to the government because even if they fight, no one will get the solution because people will die a lot. And they decided to to do a case fire and to leave all villages they were occupied and they returned back to their initial positions. Yesterday, they left uh, Rangira, Kabinti and Jomba. And they even let the uh, captured FRDC in the end of in the hand of the Red Cross people. Now, so they've declared the M23 has declared a ceasefire and have pulled back. Now, the ADF is claiming new attacks. What is the government or what are the military commanders saying about these developments? The government, uh, since the decision of M23 to cease fire, the government didn't do anything. But about uh, the ADF attack, the government said they are doing all the best to, to make end of that menace. Uh, but one thing we know is just 
and it seems that ADF is not controlled. That was journalist Jafar Al-Qatanti in the DRC speaking with my colleague Kate Pound Dawson. The Eastern DRC has experienced a surge of violent attacks in recent weeks by the M23, which originated two decades ago as mainly an ethnic Tutsi force, the ADF, and a group known as Kodeko, formed by the members of the ethnic Lendu community. In Egypt, a bus heading to Egypt's uh, famed Abu Simbel Temple crashed into a car today, killing 10 people, including five European tourists and five Egyptians. The governor of Aswan said 14 others, eight French and six Belgians, when stable condition for broken bones, bruises, and superficial injuries. Road accidents are relatively common in Egypt, where many roads are often in disrepair and traffic regulations sparsely applied. The Abu Simbel Temple was moved in the 1960s from its original location under the administration of then-President Gamal Abdel Nessar to make way for the construction of the Aswan High Dam. In Tunisia... More than a thousand Tunisians rallied in the capital of the latest demonstration against what they call an ongoing power grab by President Gais Said. They accuse him of implementing a failed dictatorship that is leading the country to economic disaster. Even after U.S. Under Secretary of State Ezra Zaya visited the North African country to underscore the importance of strengthening democracy and implementing an inclusive political and economic reform process, Saeed continued his moves to consolidate power. Monji Daoudi, a Tunisian-American political analyst, discussed the political tensions in Tunisia with VOA senior analyst Mohamed Ashnawi. Since July 25th of last year, ISIS Hayed fired the government, he suspended the parliament, he declared himself as the chief prosecutor of the country, using a very distorted interpretation of an Article 80 in the Constitution. And since that time, the U.S. and other international community, the European Union, have been calling on him to put the country back onto normal democracy as we know it. He kept giving lip service. He met with several U.S. officials before his last visit by Zia Ozrazia. He met with uh, Senator Murphy and Senator Ossoff back at the end of last year, where he promised just a matter of you know weeks or a couple of months before we go back and allow transition to democracy to take place again. All of that was lip service. There is no way that uh, this president, from what we have seen so far, that he will go back to normal democracy. He will not allow this country to go back to to representative parliament. He will not allow the country to have representative democracy, uh, to allow political parties, especially the ones who oppose him. He already declared that last week, that he's not going to even consult them in some of the changes that he's planning on doing for the constitution. So the situation is bleak. The economic situation is extremely difficult. Inflation is uh, is high. Prices have tripled, quadrupled since last July. He has no solution to all these social and economic problems. He is yet to negotiate a deal with the IMF. The ratings that we've seen last month, the uh, Tunisian economy and, and financial institutions have dropped to its lowest level in decades. So all of this is not going to deter him from continuing on this destructive path. Saeed said he would form a committee to rewrite the constitution, put it to a referendum in July, and then hold a 
parliamentary elections in December. He added that any upcoming elections would take place in two rounds and that party lists would be replaced by direct voting for individual candidates. Would that restore a transition to democracy in Tunisia? That would probably hear from the president saying that this is the path to restoring democracy as he sees it fit. This is not you know, back to this roadmap that he declared at the end of last year, where we saw many of the international community, including the U.S., has welcomed that step. And tell you the truth, it's a roadmap to nowhere. If it's going to lead us, it will lead us to more entrenched system of one-man rule of Qais He is not going to allow political parties to participate in elections. He thinks that by allowing this individual or voting system is the path to empower the lower class Tunisians. But actually, that's going to do the, completely the opposite. Even at a local level, we know that if you allow only individuals to run, so those who have money, those who have clout, those who have probably strong family ties, wide family ties, especially in our region, are the ones who are going to be winning these elections, not the common person. So it's all lip service again. This is not going to restore democracy. And I personally, I don't think that the, the U.S. or the international community should hedge their bet on Thai society. I think they need to look to other institutions to strengthen political parties, especially the ones who are opposing him, and civil society. And today, the first step of that, I think the, there's a delegation that came from the European Union. They met with Thai society yesterday, but today they made it a point to meet with the parliament speaker and his two vice speakers. And that is a, a step in the right direction to recognize that the parliament is still an institution, even after Kaisai dissolved through his own illegal and unconstitutional decision. And I think that's a strong message to say that we still recognize the parliament as a constitutional institution that still exists, despite what the president Kaisai had said. That was Manji Daoudi, a Tunisian-American political analyst speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed Al-Shanawi in Cameroon. Authorities in Cameroon moved 150 children from the streets of the capital to centers for abandoned kids yesterday as part of its observance of International Day for Street Children. The government says the number of street children in the country has has risen sharply due to poverty, the COVID-19 pandemic and the conflicts along Cameroon's borders. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Rights and humanitarian groups moved from street to street, visiting markets, riversides and abandoned buildings in Cameroon's capital city, Yaoundé, in search of homeless children. When they were found, some children agreed to go to shelters. Others refused and were given clothes and food. Rachel Balafai heads the Street Child Center, a Yaoundé charity. She says the search was conducted at night because that is when searchers are sure they can find the street children and see the conditions under which they live. La plupart de ces jeunes garçons ont perdu leurs parents au nord. On leur a dit que la vie. Balafai says her association gave food and clothing to 230 street children this week in Yaoundé, who are from Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria. She says uninformed people in northern Cameroon make children believe there are many opportunities to improve their living conditions in Douala and Yaoundé, Cameroon's largest cities. Balafai says some of the children are orphans. 
On International Day for Street Children, non-governmental organizations and the government invited traditional leaders and the clergy to give support to street children. The Council of Imams and Muslim Dignitaries of Cameroon took part at the event. Musa Umaru is the council's coordinator. La question des enfants de la rue est une question importante. Umaru says parents and family members should know that it is their collective responsibility to take care of their children. He says street children need love and care and should not be battered or treated as people rejected or ostracized by society or by religious groups. Umaru says the government should remove all children from the streets and make sure the children are given an education which is a fundamental human right. Cameroon reports that the number of street children in major cities increased from 10,000 to about 27,000 within the past three years. Some of the children are refugees fleeing instability in the Central African Republic. Others fled insecurity caused by Boko Haram attacks in northern Cameroon and the conflict between the government and separatist groups in Cameroon's western regions. Pauline Irengene is Cameroon's Minister of Social Affairs. Ngene says several conflicts Cameroon and its neighbors are experiencing contribute to the increase in the number of street children. She says the government is struggling to contain the crisis and working to return children and displaced persons to their communities. Cameroon is encouraging families and communities to assist the government by providing shelter, accommodation and access to education for the street children. Speaking on Cameroon State Radio CRTV, Ngene said the government will house, feed and educate street children and urge them to leave the streets. She said at least 250 children have either been reunited with their families or enrolled in schools within the past year. The government says the number of street children may continue to grow in the urban centers where, unfortunately, about 40% of the population lives below the poverty line. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. In Zambia, fuel pump prices have increased by more than 20% over the past two months. The trend is rising fears that the country is reversing its economic gains as more than 60% of its population live on less than 2 US dollars per day. Development experts warn that monthly fuel adjustments introduced by the government will make it difficult, if not impossible, for citizens to afford housing, water and food. Kathy Short reports from Lusaka. It's a busy day at this filling station in the Zambian capital. Tens of drivers are lining up to fill their vehicles with fuel. Fuel prices increased by 20% in the past week. Recently, the government announced the removal of fuel subsidies. Recently, the government announced the removal of fuel subsidies, pushing up costs to consumers. The latest increase means one can only buy three liters of petrol with 100 kwacha, which is about $5.69. Taxi driver Albert Mutambo says the new fuel prices are beyond the reach of most ordinary Zambians. 
He is calling on the government to help cushion the citizens from further price increments. Another Lusaka resident, Sam Tembo, says he has cut down on his daily meals as his $50 monthly wage as a cleaner is not enough for him and his family to live on. One U.S. dollar is equal to 17 Zambian kwacha. Charity Samba is a development analyst at the University of Zambia. She says most Zambians live under very harsh economic conditions. However, Zambia's energy minister, Peter Kapala, has assured the citizens of his government's commitment to finding a lasting solution to the high cost of fuel. The monthly review of domestic fuel prices means that the domestic cost of petroleum products will heavily rely on the performance of international oil prices and the kwacha and U.S. dollar exchange rate, which is highly unstable. The government is proposing a 30-day pricing strategy, but many Zambians say that's going to make it extremely hard for them to plan for the needs of their families. I'm Kathy Short for VOA News, Lusaka, Zambia. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Mike Wobe in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing The Voice of America.